Thank you, Kenny and Charlie, and welcome uh, to Horizon this morning. Uh, this morning, we've got the privilege of hearing from a guest speaker, a friend of mine, Tim Downs. Uh, Tim is a nationally known speaker. He is, and his wife, Joy, have authored two books on conflict resolution and marriage. And Tim is a murder mystery writer. So it ought to prove to be interesting what he has to say. I want you to give a hearty horizon welcome to Tim Downs. Come on up, Tim. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that very much. Good morning. It is a a little bit awkward to be writing books on both marriage and murder. And, And it makes my wife a little nervous, you know? To know that I spend my days thinking about how to do away with people. In fact, Joy actually said to me once, she said, hey, if anything ever happens to me, everyone will know. I said, honey, if anything ever happens to you, no one will know. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, but I got to say, Trey, I'm really sad that I'm going to miss that helicopter egg drop. And I, I was listening. I'm just, I just wanted to clarify, when the helicopter drops those eggs, the kids are not going to be under the helicopter, are they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm just picturing hundreds of kids yelling, incoming. What's the casualty rate for one of these events anyway? That sounds like great fun. Well, we're talking about the parent map. And you know there's a series that's been going here on here for a few weeks now on parenting at different stages of of married life. And I get a chance to take one part of it. So a couple of weeks ago, Chad talked about from Coupleton to Babyville. And then Doug, he talked about from Babyville to Tween City. Then Chad was back. He took you from Tween City to Teenopolis. Now, officially, my job is to take you from Teenopolis to College Town, though I'm just calling this for my own purposes, from Full House to Empty Nest. I didn't know what to call it, you know, from College Town to Death Valley, what do you, you know, I'm out of names here. It's the best I can do. Now, classically, when you talk about parenting, there's four components. If you're a parent, there are four things that you're involved in. The first is the issue of identity. Identity asks the question, am I good or bad? Am I loved or unloved? Am I a boy or a girl? And what what does that mean anyway? So your child is born into a strange world asking the questions, who am I? What is my identity? Our job is to provide answers to those questions as they grow. Second component of parenting is character. And that's all those issues of integrity, honesty that we teach them growing up. I grew up in St. Louis. I'm a Midwesterner. In St. Louis, every fall... My father and I had the job of fertilizing trees. We had three hardwood trees in our front yard. We had a hackberry, we had a a pin oak, and we had a sweet gum. Drop all those sweet gum balls everywhere, right? So our job was fertilizing the trees. Now, the way you do this is you have an auger and a sack of fertilizer. An auger is basically a large corkscrew. What you do is drill holes in the ground and you fill them with fertilizer. Job done. Now, whenever I would do a job with my father, we had this arrangement. Dad was management, I was labor. Same arrangement you had with your parents, which meant when it came to the job of fertilizing the trees, I would be drilling holes, Dad would be pointing at the ground. 
couldn't wait to have kids of my own. I can still remember the first time we ever did the job. I just said to my dad, where do you want the holes? Dad said, well, the best place to drill the holes is where the roots end, because that way the tree can most efficiently absorb the fertilizer. I said, great. I'll just use my x-ray vision, look into the ground and see where the roots end. Dad said, no, wise guy. Wise guy wasn't the actual term he used, but this is church. He said, no, wise guy, you don't look down at all. You look up because for most hardwood trees, they won't put branches out beyond the outermost root. See, the canopy of the tree matches the roots. That way, the roots provide enough strength to support the weight of the tree. Now, I want you to think about the branches of a tree as the public you or your child's public self. That's his reputation. That's his grade point average. That's his sports awards. It's his public self. But I want you to think of his roots as his character. It's the part that's below ground. Now, you get to see the root ball of a tree from time to time in Cincinnati. You see them in the winter when you have those ice storms. And you get them here, don't you? And when that collective ice builds up on the branches of a tree, you'll see those trees laying on the side of the road sometimes with the root ball exposed. In fact, the root ball is so small, you can't help but wonder what was holding that tree up. Well, if you think of branches as your public self, reputation, if you think of root as character, you pick up the Cincinnati Enquirer about once every month or two, and you read some story, don't you, about some politician, some celebrity who, who had some downfall, some public embarrassment, some scandal. Now they're laying on the side of the road with a root ball exposed. Because it turned out that they had a much better public self than private self. Their reputation was much stronger than their character. I saw the Cincinnati Reds game on Saturday. Good game, and we almost pulled it out. You're so early in the season, you got guys on the Reds with batting averages of 750. Good luck with that. That's not going to last. But, you know, I couldn't help think, if you can bat 400 for a lifetime, you don't need to worry about your kids. If they can do that, the world will throw money at them. That's the public self. So who takes care of the private self? The world isn't worried about their reputation, about their character, about their integrity, about their honesty. See, that's the domain of the parent, right? Our job is to take care of the private self. In the Bible, there's an interesting quotation. It says, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And as a parent, we're standing in for God, in a sense. Our job with our kids is to look at their heart. We work on developing character and integrity and honesty, all the private self, because what a person is determines what a person does in life, right? And we want to make sure when we send those kids out that the root ball is as wide as the branches. That way it'll support that stress and challenge that's going to come their way in life. What we're ultimately preparing them for is number four, and that's release. And I know Chad spoke with you last week about release, and it's wise that he did because we tend to think of releasing our kids as some consummate final event, like breaking a bottle of champagne over the bow of a ship and sending it down the ramp. Only in parenting, release doesn't look like that. In parenting, release is a gradual process that begins in early childhood. That's why it was important for Chad to bring it up before the talk on release, right? So we want to look for ways to release them a little bit at a time. 
It's a lot like when you taught them to ride a two-wheeler for the very first time. Remember that? One hand on the handlebars, one hand on the back of the seat, you running breathlessly alongside them, and you'd start doing this, wouldn't you? Just letting go a little bit at a time, just testing to see whether you can feel their balance until finally, finally, you let go and watch them go off into the bushes. Remember that? That's how release works with racing kids. So we're giving them choices and we're allowing them to experience the consequences of the choices they make. We're letting our kids fail because we want our kids to fail for the first time when they're under our roof. When we can help them learn the appropriate lesson. So are you giving your kids an allowance? Do you pay them weekly? Well, as they get older, pay them monthly. Because when you get an allowance weekly, budgeting's done for you. When you get it monthly, you're going to run out of money fast if you can't manage money. And that's exactly what you want. When your kids say, Mom, Dad, I'm out of money, you want to say, and? Right? Because when you didn't budget and when you spent too fast, you're out of money and you're going to have to earn more. We're trying to create a safe and protective environment where our kids can work and try and attempt and fail, but do it under our roofs. We don't want them to fail for the very first time when they've left home away from us. Now, that brings us back to number three, which is relationship. And that's the one that I want to focus on during our time together here. Because it's during this final stage, when we go from full house to empty nest, that your relationship with your child becomes all important. It's a good idea from time to time in parenting to kind of just step back and remind ourselves of the big picture. Remember Stephen Covey, the seven habits of highly effective people? He's the one that kind of made popular that expression, begin with the end in mind. We get so involved in the details of raising our kids that we forget sometimes what it is we're shooting for. What is the end we want? What do we want for our kids? Well, I think basically what we want is we want to release them to successful adulthood, right? We want them to be successful adults. We'd like them to be kind of like us. We'd like them one day to be peers, self-sustaining, and not just our children. And though we don't often say this, you know what we'd really like? We want them to be friends. I love my kids. I'd really like it if they loved me back. I'd like them to call from time to time, right? I'd like to raise my kids in such a way that one day they are my lifelong friends. Doesn't that sound great? And I think that's what we're after. And that's why as you get closer to release, Sending them off to college or the service or work, relationship becomes important. And I'm going to talk about relationship here in two parts. First, your relationship with your child. The problem is, as we get closer to that time of release, sending the kids off to college or service or work, there are two things that go to work on you as a parent. The first is there's a sense of dwindling time, right? I don't have much time left with my kids. Holy cow, I never taught them this. Have I ever warned them about that? You know, five years ago, I should have made sure they know this. Now I've only got this much time. I need to get all this stuff in. Make sure they know this. Make sure they're careful about that. We find ourselves packing in things to that dwindling time because we sense that time is coming to a close. The second thing that goes to work on us as parents is the cost of failure increases. Right? So when they were little and they brought home a paper with a frowny face on it, that wasn't so bad. But when you're a junior 
and college applications are going out and the GPA is declining, that's different, isn't it? You've been there before. You know what the cost of failure actually is. You know that a difference of a few points on the ACT or SAT actually matters. You know in life whether it's better to go to Stanford than Bailey Technical Institute Division of Earth Moving. Over the course of a lifetime, it actually makes a difference, doesn't it? And your kids might seem unaware, but you know. So the cost of failure is increasing. And these two things create a perfect storm. That sense of dwindling time and the sense that the cost of failure is increasing. And here's the problem. The problem is it can create an atmosphere in our families of constant criticism. Your kids feel like they're living in a no-win situation. I can't do anything to please you. I can't do anything right. And it's because we are so concerned about the cost of failure and so intent on teaching all the final lessons that we can. But in parenting, there's a famous saying, and I think it's worth recalling. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. So the question we're asking as we get closer to releasing our kids is, how do we avoid that atmosphere of constant criticism? But at the same time, how do we cultivate a relationship and also teach and have boundaries and rules and give discipline? How do you do do all that at the very same time? There's a passage I want to show you in one of the Gospels. If you're new to the Bible, by the way, I didn't grow up going to church. I don't know about you guys. But when I was 18 and I went off to Indiana University, that's where I went to college. I'd never set foot in a church in my entire life. I'd never seen a Bible, never opened one. More and more people in America have backgrounds like mine. Maybe that's your background, too. I should tell you that in the Bible, there are four many biographies of the life of Jesus. We call them the the Gospels. It's just a category that means good news, good news. But there are many biographies of the life of Jesus. Very readable. None of them is any longer than an issue of Sports Illustrated. Two were actually written by his own students, and two were written by associates of his students. So in the gospel, the mini biography of the life of Jesus written by his own student, Matthew, there's a very interesting passage. It'll help us as parents. It takes place at the very beginning of Jesus' career. Jesus at this point is about 30 years old. He's about to begin a career as an itinerant rabbi and teacher. He thinks it would be a good idea to have a kind of christening for his public career. He decides he wants to be baptized. And fortunately, there's a baptizer in the family. He has a cousin named John. John is a baptizer. So Jesus goes to see John and asks to be baptized. And as he's being dunked under the water, as he comes up, there is a voice that comes from the clouds. And this is the message that you hear. This is what God says. He says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. That's it. That's the whole message. Now, I want you to think of this message not as some kind of mysterious message from a cosmic being to an earthly being. I want you to think of it as what it really is. It's a message from a father to a son. Think about the elements of the message and what's in there. First of all. Pride. Though it isn't in italics in that little mini-biography, I think it should be pronounced, this is my son. This is mine. The father is saying, I'm proud of this boy. And I want you to remember now, this is the very beginning of Jesus' career. He's done nothing. No miracles. 
No feeding 5,000, no healings, no inspirational sermons. He ain't done nothing. But the father says, this is my son. Second notice, whom I love. He voices love. And then third, with him, I am well pleased. For what? Why? He hasn't done anything. Why would the father be well pleased? Because this is my son whom I love. You get the idea? These are the things that we need to do too. Now, here's something interesting. This is in Matthew chapter 3. This is the very beginning of Jesus' career. If you jump forward 14 chapters in that little mini biography of the life of Jesus, 14 chapters, we're well into Jesus' career now. Some things are going well and some things are not. Because, you see, there are students who are turning away from Jesus. They think he's crazy. In fact, he's got one student that's considering picking up a few bucks by betraying him to Roman authorities, right? People have even tried to kill him. There are some challenges in his career. And at one point in his career, he takes two of his students up on a mountaintop. And while they're talking, a cloud forms and a voice comes from the cloud once again. Here's the message. Look familiar? This is my son. Whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Yeah. In fact, I think the father went way out of his way to make sure the message was identical. See, nothing had changed, right? Before his career, in the middle of his career, good times, bad times, and when it was all promises and potential and rainbows, and when it was tough times and he was about to be betrayed and murdered. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And can I point out one other thing? Notice, he doesn't say, you are my son. He says, this is my son. In other words, this isn't even a message to Jesus, is it? Actually, the father is bragging about his son to other people. And there's something very powerful there. Because as parents, we get into the habit of criticizing our kids in front of other people, don't we? Hey, come here. You seen my idiot son? You're not going to believe what this guy just did. I, you know, right? You know the beauty of this, this faith community? You know what's beautiful about this? We can share this value that we need to brag on our kids to each other. Because if you just go out and do it in the world, everybody's going to think you're full of yourself, right? Here we get it. And what we need to do here is brag on our kids in front of our kids. Because the things you say directly to them, they figure you got a motive for that. The things they overhear you saying to someone else about them, they figure that's what you really mean. What we need to do is what God the Father did for his son. We need to lavish pride and love and acceptance despite performance. In fact, you want to try an interesting experiment? Go home, say to your kids, I'm proud of you. And I can guarantee you what they'll say. For what? Right? Wouldn't you? What is it they're saying? What performance did I do that generated pride in you? What did I do to merit pride? And that's why, as our kids are growing, we got to get in the habit of saying, no, no. I am proud of you because you are my daughter. You are my son. I love you. And I am well pleased with you. And however it goes in life, and wherever you go, you will always be my daughter, 
whom I love, and I will be well pleased with you. My dad didn't buy this. See, my dad was born in 1913. That means he turned 16 in the year 1929. He was a true Depression-era kid. That was one tough generation. They were good providers, but they weren't very good at expressing pride and love and acceptance. In fact, my dad actually told me one day, he said, I'm not your friend. I'm not your friend. I am your father. He said, I don't believe you should praise a child. Because when you praise a child, what you're saying is you've done enough. You praise a child, you make him lazy, you make him complacent. He said, what I will always do with you is point out what you've done wrong and what you could do better. That's my job. Sounds kind of noble, doesn't it? But I'm here to tell you, it doesn't work. See, my dad was using the donkey cart technique. What he was saying is, I'm driving a donkey cart and you're a donkey. And I'm going to hold a carrot right in front of your nose. And because I will do that, because the carrot will always be in front of your nose, that will spur you to constantly move forward. I've never owned a donkey cart, personally. But if I did, it seems to me that I would apply two principles. Number one, I'd make sure that pole was just longer than the donkey's nose, not a mile long. Because if the donkey looks at that pole and thinks to himself, I'll never reach that carrot, he won't be spurred forward. He'll sit in the middle of the road. Second thing that I would do is every now and then I'd stop and feed that donkey a carrot. Because if the donkey forgets what carrots taste like, what keeps him moving forward? Right? My dad was on to one thing. I don't think you flatter kids. You're the greatest there ever was. You know, they'll buy that when they're five, but as they get older, they know you're lying to them. You don't use empty flattery, but what we do is genuinely praise for things that they actually do right. You know who taught me this lesson? My wife. When Joy and I were first married, she would say to me, how do I look? Women, do you ever have to say that to your husband? Because he doesn't think to say anything, right? How do I look? And I would go, fine. And that didn't do it for her. Now, you know why we had this problem? Because I am a problem solver. Most people are. My motto is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right? So I'm looking for problems in life. Is anything wrong? When Joy would say to me, how do I look? I would think, is there a bra strap showing, open zipper, hole in your dress? I look for problems. No, I don't see any problems. You're fine. Checked her over and she's fine. Right? Then she said something to me that I'll never forget. She said, you know, in the absence of your praise, I'll assume your dissatisfaction. Well, I was shocked because I was saying to her, you know, in the absence of my criticism, you should assume my praise. <laughs> right? You get the application for parenting. In this final stage, our kids start feeling like problems that need to be fixed. And when we look at them, they're thinking, what's wrong? What's wrong? And what we're saying to them is, in the absence of my criticism, just assume my praise. Right? If there's a problem, I'll point it out. But what we have to do, now listen to this, is catch them doing what's right. We catch them doing what's wrong, but if that's all you do, you create an atmosphere of failure and criticism. So we need to think to say, that's a great job. What'd you get on that paper? Oh, you got a, you got a B plus. Man, you've been getting C's. That's a great job. You're doing better. 
You know, the Bible says what we need to do is encourage one another. Encourage is an interesting word. Like a lot of English, it comes to us directly from French. A little prefix en that means into and the word courage. What it literally means is to put courage into somebody. That's what we have to do with kids. Because as they get closer to release, there's a lot to be afraid of, isn't there? In fact, you might say during the final stage of a child's life, issues of identity become questions again. Who am I? Right? Am I good or bad? Am I loved or unloved? When your kids are about to leave home, now the questions are, will I succeed or will I fail? Is anybody going to like me? Will I ever get a job? There's a lot to be afraid of in this life, and somebody needs to put courage into them. And that's what we really have to focus on as parents. That's what builds relationship. Now, there's a second category of relationship I'm going to touch on as we close here. It has to do with your relationship to one another. Husbands and wives. See, believe it or not, your marriage was intended to survive your kids, which may be hard to believe because they're doing their level best to tear it apart right now. Actually, nobody wants your marriage to succeed more than your kids, right? Do you ever see a situation with a mom and dad in public and they've got a little one, little Johnny, and this mom and this dad, they're, they're starting into a fight in front of everybody. They're going to share this Kodak moment with all of us. They're getting hot. They're getting angry. Do you ever see a situation where the little one will squeeze between them and start pushing them apart? Do you ever see that? Why does Johnny do this? Because he's a natural peacemaker. He'll be beating up his sister in five minutes. No, Johnny does this because he feels unsafe. He feels threatened. A lot of his sense of being loved comes not from the love that you show directly to him, but from the love you show his mom or his dad. And when you show your kids that you're doing okay, their world feels safe to them. When you got married, that pastor or that justice of the peace, he said some words to you that you never even heard because you were focused on the honeymoon. But what he was saying to you is, you know, life is like a wheel. And so far, each of you has been the center of your wheel, me. But now you're about to get married. And so what you need to do is take me out of the center of the wheel and move you to the periphery. And in the center instead, there needs to be us. Us. And you need to think of us. You need to fight for us. But you know what happens when kids come along? You take us out of the middle. You move that to the periphery and kids go to the center. Our lives get built around the kids. Their schedule determines our schedule. Their parents become our friends. What I'm trying to say to you is one of the biggest struggles that we have in our marriages is our kids. The problem that we have that nobody wants to say out loud is we're good parents. But you pay a price for being a good parent. In one of the books that Joy and I wrote on conflict resolution, we wrote this. Much is written today about uninvolved parents, passive husbands, and irresponsible wives. But there's another problem that challenges marriage today, a problem that's rarely discussed. It's the problem of involved parents, active husbands, and responsible wives. But how can that be a problem? Aren't those qualities good for children, good for society, good for the world? Yes. But they're hard on a marriage. There are millions of couples today who aren't lazy or selfish or uncommitted. They are selfless and tired and self-sacrificing. They put the kids first, the job first, the church first, 
They put everything first ahead of their own marriage. But when we invest in everything and everyone but us, marriage eventually becomes a cold, lonely, and disappointing business. See, what I'm telling you is when we reach the empty nest, we don't want the nest to be empty. So we need to invest in us. That means don't wait till the kids leave to start dating again. And you're going to need to start dating other couples because your friends have been provided by your kids. Now you've got to go out with other couples and see who you like. We, we seldom realize this, but when we release our kids, our kids release us. They release us to be what we always were, a couple again. The band's going to come back out here. They've got a song they're going to play for you by Mark Harris called Find Your Wings. I think it captures a lot of what we're trying to say. Let me just tell you in closing here, some of you I know are thinking, well, this is great, but it's too late for me. Now, I failed at doing this. I failed at at relationship. Some of you are saying, I'm just no good at this. You know, I was never loved by my mom or by my dad. And so here I am supposed to have this relationship with my kids. I don't even know what I'm doing. I didn't get anything So I got nothing to give. I want you to understand that God calls himself our father. He could have used a lot of metaphors, couldn't he? Our boss, our dictator, our ruler. He chose to call himself our parent, our father. In fact, Jesus once said, if you're going to come to God, you have to come to him as a child. Or you can't come to him at all. Which means... God invites each of us into a relationship with him. And when that happens, when we enter and live in a relationship with the father, we get a new dad. And what he does is he reparents you. You get a chance, regardless of what you did or didn't get as a child, to start all over again. And you'll find this passage in 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. It says, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And that's what God does. He loves us and teaches us how to love. Because our father wants the same things for us that we want for our kids, doesn't he? What he wants to do is to release us to successful adulthood. He's proud of us. He loves us. But he still wants to teach us. And he wants to discipline us. Because he's a good father. And his hope is that one day... As he does this, and as you learn from him, as you do it yourself with your own kids, that you'll not only learn to obey God, but love him back. Let me close with a quick word of prayer. Thanks, God, for our kids. We don't know what we're doing in so many ways. You do. You're our perfect father. And so, give us wisdom. You love us. Teach us to love one another and to release those kids to successful adulthood. Thanks. We love you back. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. And thank you, Tim. Uh, you know, one of the things that would help us focus on us as a couple so that we can engage with our kids uh, better is one of Tim's book. It's called Fight Fair. It's the best book I've read on um, conflict resolution in marriage. In fact, the thing that grabbed my attention is, it, you probably don't know this about Tim, but he was a syndicated cartoonist. So I picked it up and began reading the cartoons in it, uh, and then that led me to the margin notes, which were worth their weight in gold, like 10 Reasons Why Relationships, uh, Difficulties in Relationships Linger, uh, Eight Ways to Help 
your husband hear you? My guess is, ladies, that would be worth the price of the book. Wow. Uh, Ten listening pitfalls. Anyway, uh, this book, along with his murder mysteries, are out at the book table, uh, in case you're interested in that. It's uh, at the fireplace end of the atrium. You might want to take advantage of that. If you came prepared to give, uh, the uh, offering boxes are outside the uh, chapel here to the left. If you've got questions about Horizon, uh, let me encourage you to, to go three doors down the hall to the left, and uh, there we have uh, a group of people that would love to meet with you and engage with your questions. They'd also love to put a name with a face. Uh, so that's the hearth room, third door on the left. Uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Next week's Easter, and hope you'll come back. See you then.